Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. I'm Zach Smerin. And I'm Ben Yanowitz. The Jewish Labor Bund played an innovative and important role in Jewish history. Standing for a secular, Yiddishist, diasporist socialism, those sympathetic to these ideas today often see it as something consigned to the past, with little more than aesthetic and inspirational value. A more mainstream perspective argues that history has proven Bundists wrong. In the aftermath of the Shoah, many saw the establishment of a state of Israel as the only way to safeguard Jewish life in a racist world. While many continue to be inspired by the Bund, one branch continues to thrive from the pre-war movement. That branch is located in Melbourne, Australia, and we spoke to their vice president, Ross. Why have they survived when others didn't? How do Bundist values relate to Jewish life today? And what does the future hold for Bundism? We hope this episode will inspire people to engage with the substance of Bundist ideas. And we'd like to thank Isabel Frey, the millennial Bundist, for allowing us to use her beautiful rendition of the Bund's anthem, Dishvue. Zusammen, zusammen, die von sie ist great. Sie flattert von Zorn, von Blut ist sie reut. A schwue, a schwue, und teut. Ross, it's absolutely a pleasure to be here with you, to speak with you. I must say, I am a big fan of the Bund. It's something that comes across very much in a lot of the organizing that I do, in the organizing that I want to be doing. And so when we are discussing stuff about the Jewish diaspora, that always comes across as one of the first starting off points for me. And to be actually able to speak to someone from the organization of the Bund today and not to just look at it as something from the past is absolutely amazing. Would you like to say a little bit about yourself and then maybe a little bit about the Melbourne Bund and why it was able to survive? What is your secret? Yeah, look, firstly, thanks, guys, for having me. Big fan of your podcast as well. So, you know, here we stand in mutual respect. I'm Ross, as you so kindly mentioned my name. I am a child of the organization, first coming into its youth movement when I was 10, 11 years old, then moving my way through it until I was a leader for about three years. And now I'm involved in the Bund itself. For those, I guess, who are familiar with the Bund, it's a Jewish organization, social, political, cultural, that's committed to, I guess, the core ideologies of Freiheit, Gleichheit, and Gerechtigkeit, which is Yiddish for freedom, justice, and equality, but also very much interplays with the ideologies of the youth movement of Chavashaf, Yiddishkeit, and Doikite. Our youth movement is SKIF. It's for kids from 8 to 18 and is kind of, you know, the big, the youth wing of the organization. Uh, we often say, and the Bund jokingly that the Bund is the skiff and the skiff is the Bund. You know, th- those are two more or less different faces of the same coin. Ooh, 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 ooh. There we go. Um, I feel you definitely said some more things in your initial question. What were the other prompts? So what is the secret behind the Bund in Melbourne surviving? And not just surviving, but thriving? So I think it's it's kind of hard to say what the exact recipe is. I think... You know, from my perspective, I think the big thing that separates the Bund in Melbourne apart from the Bund in, say, uh, New York or other countries is the fact that there was a very strong investment into its youth movement, into SCIF. 
And the focus was really that Skip should be a weekly touch point for children, both, say, of parents who are in the organization, but also not of the organization. My family is not from a Buddhist background, but, you know, Skip provided me this opportunity to get involved with the wider movement. In, say, America, for instance, their Bund focused more on a yearly camp, Camp Hemshek, as opposed to weekly connections. And so I think from that get-go, you know, frequent exposure to the community is one of the big successes to the organization. Secondly, I think that one of the reasons that the Bund in Melbourne has thrived is the fact that it makes space for generational change. It encourages, you know, young members to come onto the board to get involved. Uh, it's you know, unlike certain other organizations throughout the world in the Jewish community, which are very much dominated by those who are, you know, of an older generation, we really encourage people to get involved. I myself am, say, a product of this initiative. You know, I finished my time with SCIF and at 21 years old, I joined the Bund. It was a very much a natural progression and a progression that was facilitated by the older members of the community, creating space for me to come along and get involved as well. I think that's so important when we talk about Lador Vador from generation to generation. It's so important to have that continuity, that social continuity that makes people feel included in the community from a young age. And then they can really grow into it and take part in the leadership at a young age. And so many organizations don't have that constant reinvigoration that you get from a new generation of leadership that I think is so important for change in the long term. And you mentioned Deukite, Yiddishkeit, and Chavershoft, that's hereness, Jewishness, and socialism or solidarity. I was really wondering what Yiddishkeit means to you, because Yiddishkeit, Jewishness, that is something that can be understood in a lot of different ways. And I know historically the Bund adopted and promoted a secular Yiddish culture. I was wondering what that looks like in the Bund in Melbourne today. So, great question. Yiddishkeit, I think, really focuses on Jewishness, not so much Judaism. I think it's a real distinction between the two. Jewish history and secular involvement, a safe instance of celebration of Jewish, you know, Yom Toysen, for instance, the Seder's Shabbos's, Yom Kippur is a secular event. It's a communal opportunity to come together and not for the sake of a higher being, but for our own communal development, for our own reflections due to it being a rich cultural tradition. Yiddishkeit is the celebration of our Jewish identity. It's the fact that, you know, we are Jewish not for the sake of um, piety or, you know, hope of a better life when we die. It's for the sake of contributing to a golden arcade, a golden chain, that there's a deep, beautiful history of our people spanning back thousands of years, and we are adding on to this chain. We are the next links in the chain. Uh, Judaism isn't a religion as so much it is a, you know, cultural expression, a national expression of our people. I also had a point, just a point to ask as well, because I know you guys really promote that Yiddish culture, which in the modern world, it's not so much clear. In the current moment, not a lot of people really speak Yiddish anymore. Yiddish was a language that many of us, Ashkenazi Jews, our, our ancestors spoke, different variations of Yiddish in their communities. But at the same time, for those of us that emigrated from the old country in Eastern Europe to the US or the UK or Australia, Yiddish speakers stopped really passing on that culture for the most part. 
So my family has been in the U.S. for three generations, and my grandma doesn't even speak Yiddish. She was not really raised with it because they encouraged an assimilationism to integrate within American society. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the role that Yiddish might play in organizing today, especially given that after the Bund shifted towards an international diasporism after the Shoah in World War II and 45, they really weren't able to grow in the way that they did before. And I, I do think that part of that is because they maintained this Yiddish-centric Jewish culture that wasn't really able to appeal to those that didn't speak Yiddish anymore. And it sounds like what Skiff does is really encourages people to engage with that Yiddish culture at a young age, which frankly, I was denied. I didn't have that. And I've only actually been reconnecting the Yiddish culture in the last six months, to be honest, a year. And that's really important to me now at this point where I may be able to really see myself in the Yiddish speakers, but you don't really have that for most Jewish diasporas. So I was wondering if you see any limitations in Yiddish as the language of the diaspora or as the language of the Bund as a movement as an, and as an organization. Yeah, so definitely a few thoughts. I think firstly, you know, definitely, as you mentioned, Yiddish culture and language, uh, you know, have kind of a place of pride and deep love in our organization. And, you know, it all goes back to when the Bund was founded, Yiddish was the language of the Jewish working class. And that's how, you know, the Bund could communicate. If, you know, all the working class spoke Russian, then we'd probably be Russischkeit. Yiddishkeit fundamentally isn't about, say, Yiddish, it's about Jewishness. Yiddish, as I'm sure you know, is just a direct translation of Jewish. And uh, it's the concept of being proud of your Jewish heritage, whether it is Ashkenazi or Sephardi or Mizrahi. It's about promotion of all our Jewish, I like to call the Jewish cultural baggage that we all carry on our backs. You know, to be able to speak Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-French, you know, what little seeds our ancestors planted uh, in terms of language trees for us to be able to celebrate those fruits. You definitely, you know, don't have to have a grasp of the Yiddish language to be a part of Skiff or the Bund. You know, my own Yiddish uh, isn't as great as I wish it would to be. And definitely, you know, congratulations for rediscovering your Yiddish. It's a good point, you know, how do we use Yiddish and reconcile that idea now with, you know, the modern world where English is very much, you know, the lingua franca of definitely where I am in the UK as well, America. Why should we hold Yiddishkeit in such a prominent role? And, you know, the answer is to be proud of our heritage, to enjoy and celebrate it, that this is the language that our ancestors spoke and that we aren't ashamed to speak it. It's a show of pride that we aren't assimilating. It's that we're happy to integrate, but we're still continuing our Jewish identity, that we're not forsaking it to, you know, fit into the modern secular world. Just as, you know, say, for instance, in Israel, we're not abandoning our past heritage of Yiddish in replacement of the new modern Hebrew, for instance. And, you know, we can really see that now happening a lot in all communities around the world where young Jews are rediscovering Yiddish, whose grandparents and great-grandparents spoke it as a kind of reclamation of their past. I think this ties very well into the next point that we wanted to talk about, which is the whole idea of doikait. Doikait is a little bit different than diasporism, though if we're talking mm. about diaspora Jews, the idea of connecting to wherever we live, that's our homeland, dort wo mir leben, dos, uh, dort is unser Land. Uh, as the old slogan goes. Uh, I, always, I, I always butcher that when I speak on... Uh, speak hey, on no, look, podcast. I got it, so that's what matters. Where we but, are, uh, there is our homeland. Yeah, ich bin nur an Onheber, is what I have to say to that. <laughs> There's this tension that I think you can feel a little bit in the history of the Bund. And I don't want to 
We don't want to talk so much about the history of the Bund today, because some of the basics, I believe that a lot of the people that listen to our podcast will already know. And if they don't, then there's resources that we will add in the description of the podcast, both here and on YouTube. And we will also link to the Trafe podcast that has a three-part series about speaking about the history of the Bund. But one thing as also a historian, as someone who is not looking at this period currently through any academic reason, but just simply out of interest, is that very early on in the history of the Bund, after 1897, there was a decision that was made that the true feeling of Deukait would be achieved in what was then the Russian Empire, so various areas of Eastern Europe, that that was Deukait. And that if there were people that left, for example, Bundists that were scattered abroad in Switzerland or the United Kingdom as exiles or as Jewish workers in the United States, that yes, they were able to sympathize with the Bund, but they were not able to recreate themselves as local Bundist organizations for a long time. Because the real struggle was to take place in what was the Russian Empire, and then later on when the Bund was only legal and able to function primarily in Poland, with some small exceptions, that was the case. And so, in my opinion, that's not exactly Deukite. It's what later would come across as to be understood as Dortenkeit, theirness, that true Jewish culture and communal fulfillment can take place in the diaspora, but it prioritizes a certain area because that is considered the original place of shtetl life, original place where the most Jews were concentrated. And after the Holocaust happened, and the communities in these countries were much, much smaller, and a lot of the survivors just wanted to leave, and those who did want to recreate the Bund, like in Poland after the Second World War, were very quickly shut down by the communist authorities... There was a shift towards internationalizing the Jewish labor bund, as David Slukey looks at in his writings. But at that point, it was a little bit too late because the strength of the Zionist movement or different Zionist movements and the establishment of the State of Israel was too strong for the Bund internationally to be a strong movement in the Jewish diaspora. So it's very clear that as a Bundist organization about as far away from Eastern Europe as you can get... To be able to strongly embrace the idea of doikait, you cannot simply view yourself as an extension of a real homeland. At this point, your homeland has become Australia, the place where you want to create your diasporism. How do you understand that tension in the current activities of the Bund in Melbourne? I think, look, it's, it's an interesting tension, it's an interesting concept that you mentioned. I think it's really important to, you know, definitely keep in mind that 1897, Tsarist Russia, you know, the social, political, economic, everything conditions there, very different to our 2023 Melbourne. I think for us, really, you know, it is a focus on building our community right here, right now. The idea that all Jews should be building strong Jewish communities wherever they live, not necessarily looking to move to you know Israel and focus their efforts there, but to really realize that where they live, that's a Jewish community. And Doika really focuses on the idea that all Jewish communities are equal, that Melbourne's just as important as Moscow, just as important as New York, just as important as Jerusalem. No one community is above another. I think Doikite is not just about the ability to build a strong Jewish community, but about your right to build a strong Jewish community. I think probably, you know, if I was back in the early 1900s, I might disagree with some of the Bundes saying that, you know, no, we must focus on, you know, if you're in New York, that's theirness, that's not our one. 
I personally think many of the Bundestag are now would disagree with that, that we should be building our communities now as we are without a view into the future of, you know, oh, when we make Aliyah, that's when we'll be building our community and that's when we'll be a Jewish community. The Jewish community is where you are right now. And speaking of where you are right now, mm-hmm. the idea of Doikait as concentrating on wherever you are, that's where your community should be. It does not address perhaps colonial or different kinds of relations between the populations that might exist in that homeland. It doesn't state that the homeland is exclusive or the place where your community is exclusive, but it does not address these kinds of relations that would exist. And certainly in the case of either the United States or perhaps Argentina, where there is a strong Jewish community and there was a significant Bundist movement, as well as in Australia, these settler colonial relations certainly did exist. So how do you believe that you have a strong belief that Jewish life in Australia can exist, whilst also recognising that the land relations in Australia are significantly shaped by the injustice that happened to the native population? Yeah. So I think the a real core understanding of Doikai is that Jewish future is interlinked with all of humanity's future, that Jews cannot be free to live their lives to the fullest in the freedom that is enabled to them without all of humanity having the chance to do that. And I think that's why really the struggle for First Nations justice is very much intertwined with our idea of Doikai and, you know, to some point, Chavashap as well. Australian history really begins 65,000 years ago with our First Nations people, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, Australia for what we call today. You know, the fact that they had hundreds of different language groups, hundreds of different communal structures is something that really the modern Australian state does ignore. And I think the uncomfortable reality for all people living in Australia, not just the Jewish community, but is that we are living on this occupied land that was stolen that has never been a treaty and current process to establish a treaty met with a lot of resistance. There's this interesting kind of dichotomy in the Jewish Zionist community where Jews are native to this land of Israel and we deserve everything there is there. However, First Nations people, we can ignore their demands and ignore everything that they call for because, hey, we won, you know, we colonized the area. Wound very much, you know, we believe that is not the case. And as you alluded to earlier, there is now a proposal for an Indigenous voice to government. It's called the Voice to Parliament. And the idea is to give Indigenous communities a route to help inform policy and legal decisions that impact their lives. It's currently, I guess, the hot topic issue in Australia, and the Bund is getting active in advocating for that voice to Parliament. And even in some of the publications that you have, which we haven't mentioned yet about Link, which we've published in, we've published our dispatches from UJS conference, but even that states that you are from Melbourne, Nam, which is the indigenous name for the location yes. for the colonization. Mm-hmm. The Cooling Nations language group for what the city, the area that the city occupies. Definitely, you know, I think all organizations in Australia could be doing more for uh, indigenous groups and indigenous justice. I think, you know, I hope that this, you know, the voice to parliament is a step, not a destination, not just for the Bund, but for the Australian community as a whole moving forward um, to enact a Shana Betzer belt, a more beautiful, more just world for us all to live. I love that. I was wondering, because we said a little bit about Chavershaft, Chavershaft being the third of the Yiddishkeit, Dwekeit, and Chavershaft. Chavershaft, I've heard translated as solidarity. I've also heard it translated as socialism. I was wondering what Chavershaft means to you, as well as what 
that commitment to solidarity or socialism means in practice in the broader ecosystem of left-wing groups in Australia and, and in Melbourne? Yeah. So Chavashat, in my perspective, really translates to camaraderie, Chavah, you know, comrade. And I, you know, the beauty of languages is you can kind of like interpret them slightly to some variations. So yes, you have that camaraderie, you've got that socialism, if you so choose to kind of perceive it as that. From, I guess, for younger Bundists, then the understanding of Chavashat is simply sharing and caring, you know, seeking to make the world, you know, a bit better, a bit nicer, that you care for each other and look out for, you know, your fellow human beings. And, you know, but as you kind of go deeper and explore the idea, I think the concepts of socialism, of social democracy and democratic socialism begin coming to mind. I think it's really interesting that the Bund, you know, was really kind of hated by Vladimir Lenin since the early 1900s for this basic disagreement about the role of democracy in socialism and of socialist government and the concept of national self-determination. For us, all three ideologies are interlinked. You know, Havashak is the reason why we believe in Doikite, and Doikite is the reason why we believe in Yiddishkeit, and Yiddishkeit is the reason why we believe in Havashak. They're all intertwined and help form our worldview. You know, the fight for justice, the fight for Freiheit, Gleichheit, and Gerechtigkeit. The idea that we must continue, that we are, you know, it's integral for us to be building a better world. And the way that we achieve that is through, you know, our vision and understanding of what that means. I was wondering in particular what that means in relation to trying to build a better world in Australia. How do you engage with the broader Australian political scene? So the Jewish Labour Bund used to be very interlinked with the Australian Labour Party, which is our centre-left. It depends who you ask, either centre-left or neoliberalist, you know, not to get into kind of the differences between there, but our left-wing mainstream party. Uh, there was a very kind of strong network between Bundists volunteering being active in the party and the party assisting Bundists in bringing in Jews from Europe into Australia. Nowadays, we campaign on progressive issues. We, you know, have been active in the legalisation of same-sex marriage. We're campaigning for better treatment of refugees. I think that one of the big components of our contributions is that we raise, help raise a generation that are socially conscious, that are aware of the world they live in and are also seen to make a better world. The local member of parliament for the area that the Bund is based in used to be himself a skiffist and leader of the uh, skiff organization. So, you know, we are, we are growing our own cadres, so to speak. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, having a Bundist in Parliament is not something I think people realize that like we don't yeah. live in like the Bund is not in the past. It's still here. And I think that's no, something it's still that here. Is... And I think the ideologies of the Bund itself, you know, are still here. Many people don't realize that they agree with, you know, the basic principles of that we just spoke about. You speak to, you know, a random Jew on the street and, you know, if you kind of have a very recent conversation explain, hey, well, Actually, you know, do you think that we should be strengthening our Jewish community right here that we are in the agreed of? So, yes, I do. And, you know, you say, do you think that we should be proud of our Jewish heritage? They'll say, yes, absolutely. And, you know, kind of if you very carefully were, you know, avoid maybe the word socialism to say, hey, should we be fighting for a better world where the working class have a better deal, where the rich pay their fair share of taxes and you kind of these very soft socialist principles without actually saying the big scary S word. You know, a lot of people will agree with that as well. I think the real challenge is kind of the mainstream domination of institutions by kind of more conservative, more Zionist organizations. And they present that as, you know, the only viewpoint and the only way forward in the Jewish community. 
And when you don't have kind of voices that counter that, that becomes the environment that new generations grow up in and that new generations believe that, oh, we are by default a Zionist community, we're default, you know, a conservative community, we're default X, Y, Z. It's important to offer, you know, this large ecosystem of concepts for people discovering, I guess, their place in the world to see what viewpoints and ideologies they agree with. Yeah, I think that's really important. That kind of brings me to the next question I wanted to ask, which is, the Melbourne Bund, it seems like it's relatively thriving, but at the same time, there's only one branch in Melbourne. I was wondering why you guys haven't tried to expand beyond Melbourne to other parts of Australia or other parts of the world. That's a tough one. That's that's a tough one. I think, firstly, it's that Melbourne proved to be very beneficial soil for the Bund to grow. Our demographics compared to Sydney, which is the next big city in Australia, are different. Melbourne had a big influx of Polish Eastern European Jews, where Sydney tends to have more Romanian Jews move there. And so already we have this difference in demographics. The Jews from Poland came and began rebuilding, you know, this societies and the world they knew after the Second World War and slightly before it in the interwar period. Wounded from old world Europe came and began rebuilding the world they knew here. You know, members of the Bund were very instrumental in establishing, let's say, the Jewish Welfare Society here in Melbourne, the Yiddish Library. They had a big active role in the Yiddish State School in the Holocaust Museum. So already kind of that communal structure was, was similar to the people that were moving here. Secondly, I think it's tough. I think the labor relations in the country aren't based on nationality now, aren't based on, say, ethnicity. And so it's much harder to, you know, begin organizing their Jewish workers in, say, other cities when they don't necessarily see themselves as Jewish workers. They might not even see themselves as workers. But that is more of a discussion of kind of the modern world unions and how do we break through the right-wing propaganda that we're all united and labor and capital, you know, there's no difference in the two. But lastly, I think we perhaps just haven't had the resources and opportunities to start up new branches. There probably hasn't been willingness in other cities to host a Bund, no, or not necessarily a large grid enough mass to sustain one. So I'm very, very keen to ask about labor relations and the Jewish labor movement, but I'll get to that in just one moment. Because first, I want to ask specifically about these communal institutions a little bit locally. In Britain, what we're most accustomed to as the representative voice of British Jewry is the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And if my understanding is correct, there is also an Australian Board of Deputies. And likewise, in our demographic as students, there is the Union of Jewish Students, which there is also an Australian branch understanding. I don't remember currently what its name is. In these two organisations, which at least in the British context claim to represent the general Jewish community, there is a divide in Britain about whether to be involved in them at all in the first place, because their politics are agreed to be unacceptable and that it's not worth trying to do anything really inside them. We take a little bit more of a nuanced approach. We're very strongly opposed to a lot of the stuff that both the board and UJS do. But certainly with the UJS, we have a history of being involved in that. So how does the Bund and especially the youth section approach these questions? How are, are these institutions beyond repair? Is it not worth trying in them anymore? Or is it worth at least trying to shift a little bit of the discourse inside? 
Yeah, so in Australia, we've got the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, which is the uh, peak national body representing the Australian Jewish community. It's a big umbrella organisation for sub-smaller groups as well, and that's an affiliate of the World Jewish Congress. But most of our kind of representations happens on a state basis. Uh, New South Wales has the uh, Jewish Board of Deputies, whilst Victoria has the Jewish Communal Council of Victoria. Names probably change around just for ego's sake, is what I could imagine. The Bund is a member of the JCCV, the Jewish Community Council of Victoria. And from what I understand, maybe 30 or so groups are direct affiliates of the JCCV. I hope I'm not wrong seeing any false information. Actually, just quickly looked up, it's 53 affiliates on their website. So I stand corrected. So just to, yeah. just to clarify on that, members of the Jewish Community Council of Victoria are organisations, but, organizations. but there aren't direct elections that take place to them. So for membership on any sort of geographic or communal basis. I, I don't think I'm able to give you an honest answer to that just because I don't know. I haven't definitely seen any individual elections. I think groups can apply to join the overarching body and then the other groups vote on whether they let them in. And in terms of how leadership of the JCCV is chosen, I'm unsure. So I'm not able to give you a good, accurate answer. So that's kind of, in some ways, similar to the Board of Deputies, which claims to have elected representatives from both local communities, but also different organizations, as well as the system that is in America with the, Ben, you'll have to correct me here, the presidents of major Jewish American organizations, something like that. Yeah, the Council of Presidents. But that's even more so with the Council of Presidents is essentially the leadership of the mainstream communal organizations, which is semi-accountable to the membership. But again, there's not really any direct elections as far as I know. The organization which recently the Workers' Circle left. Yes. And of course, in Britain, there is the Jewish Leadership Council. So all of these organizations are very much leadership-focused, membership-focused, but they aren't very democratic. They're not rank and file of the Jewish community. No. And I guess, you know, in the old world, that's what the Jewish labor would hope to be, is the rank and file of the Jewish working class. In Melbourne, definitely, you know, we're sometimes an active voice that's alternate to the mainstream voices of the mainstream Jewish community. I think we're seeing now, however, a shift where Jewish individuals aren't necessarily agreeing with the mainstream communal organisations. Uh, but this is both on the left and the right. I think that's something that's become really interesting. There have been kind of, you know, far-right Jewish groups established. I won't be naming them, but using very official-sounding titles and issuing press releases that make it seem that the whole Jewish community is being represented by them. And similar on our, a lot of Jews are leaving kind of the mainstream organizations because they don't feel represented and starting their own alternatives. Some of these alternatives end up joining back to the JCCB, so kind of either stretching the Overton window or being folded into it, whilst others kind of stay outside of it because they don't see themselves necessarily represented by it. And what about students? What's the situation like with that? After all, in SCIF and in the Bund, there is going to be a point in there when some Bundists or SCIFists are students. Yeah, so in the Australian Jewish community, there's a very large variety of youth movements. From my account, about eight or nine, spanning the political spectrum, ranging from the, you know, I consider skip to be the left towards, you know, the real right-wing beta elements and everything in between. Some religious ones, such as Chabad youth organizations and, you know, reform organizations as well, having their own youth movements. Those are 
for kids up until 18 years of age. That's typically when you finish high school. And then there's that opportunity to be involved as a leader, either on skip as a helper or in the Zionist youth movement as a madrich or bogrim. And that you stay in that position for about maybe two, three, four years. And then afterwards, kind of you leave the youth movement world. Concurrently, whilst you're, say, 18 to 22 and a helper or madrich, you can be involved with Orges, which is the Australasian Union of Jewish Students. However, I'm not sure the exact numbers that are involved with Orges or how, percentage-wise, how many Jewish students become engaged with Orges. Again, Orges is itself kind of sometimes seen as a more conservative organization or as a more Zionist organization. And some people just don't think it's really cool to be part of any Jewish organization once you leave school. The belief that you want to kind of, you know, Enjoy the regular world that you're out of the Jewish communal bubble, that you've finished Jewish high school and you're excited to meet your multicultural friends at university. I definitely was part of Forges. I believe that it's important for Jewish students to stick together. But there were definitely elements that offered died degree, such as, you know, its propensity for Zionism. That being said, though, if the majority of the community is Zionist, why would an organization claim to represent Jewish communal students not identify as Zionist? So I can definitely understand from their perspective where that ideological background comes from. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's all very interesting. And I think that in Britain, especially, there needs to be, it's interesting to have these discussions about involvement in communal institutions, and then questioning why these communal institutions are so right wing, which sometimes a lot of Jewish leftists do not seem to understand that these phenomena are interconnected, that if there was a significant presence, these institutions, which a lot of the times are not very strong in of themselves, if you're talking about a level of local Jewish student communities at British universities, or in America, there could be significant change enacted within them, or at least an opportunity to offer an alternative to the status quo. And likewise, when it comes to the mainstream Jewish communal institutions, one of the biggest examples of Bundes growing in strength in the interwar period in Poland was the decision to participate in the 1936 Kahila elections, which previously were boycotted as they were viewed as undemocratic and controlled by orthodox Jewish groups. And itself, Bundes presence in there, even though in a lot of these kahilas they did not form the majority, although in some they did, was a very big shock to the mainstream Jewish establishment in Poland that these Bundes are present. And there was quite a big fear from them and some attempts even of collaborating with the Polish state to prevent Bundes from voting in there. But enough about history, because we could talk about the history of the Bund a lot. I wanted to ask specifically about something that is framed by history, but also has important implications today. The idea of a Jewish labor movement and how that relates to the Bund. If we are to talk about traditional institutions of what a Jewish labor or Jewish workers are, that's not something that's very present anywhere in the diaspora. The idea of the Jewish working class as a strong existence today is seen as something of the past and sentimental. Part of that has to do with the general decline of working class politics, of trade unions, of different socialist organizations of, of all stripes. But there's also some element of it that states that Jews are not workers anymore, that Jews are not in a social position in which they could interact with a labor movement. I don't want to get into the whole discussion of are Jews inherently middle class, obviously nothing of the anti-Semitic tropes of all Jews are rich and therefore none of them can be workers. And so quite the opposite. I do believe that there needs to be a understanding that like all populations, like all people in the world today, a majority of Jews have to work to survive and do suffer under the forms of alienation and oppression that come from a capitalist system. 
and are able to organize in this way in order to create better conditions for themselves and better conditions for society as a whole. And now how that may be understood by populations that, or by people that might not consider themselves workers, or how can a Jewish worker identity exist when Jewish workers often are not connected locally with themselves when a lot of workplaces are not Jewish uh, or are not majority Jewish and there might only be one or two Jewish workers in a certain workplace or even in a certain city that might identify as such. But there are a lot of interesting questions that I believe certainly deserve further understanding there. Or further investigation. Now, from what I understand, currently in Melbourne, you are having certain discussions about what all these terms and understandings like socialism, what does this mean to you? And so I really want to ask about this, because in my view, certainly, if a Bundist organization, wherever it is in the world, is to exist, it has to have some kind of ties to the labor movement. If a Bundist organization was to be established in Poland, or maybe in Britain or in America, or is supposed to be referencing that legacy, if it does not have connection to current labor struggles, then its potential is seriously limited. And it can reference history, it can talk about culture, and I think that's certainly important. But if it does not have that base and enforcement in a labor movement in which Jews participate themselves and are not just considered allies from the outside to the real workers, because real workers are not Jewish in this understanding, then that limits the understanding of what a Bundist organization might be. So how does this situation look like in Melbourne? Are are Bundists involved in unions? Are there understandings? Is there any involvement with general organizations outside of the Labour Party, which, from your understanding, is not going to be too connected to direct workplace struggles? Look, it's a, it's a prickly question. Look, it's it's really, firstly, I think definitely agree with you on the point that, you know, Jews aren't all, you know, wealthy. In, I think, Melbourne or Australia, the statistic is that I think 20% of Jews live below the poverty line, and the large majority of those are Holocaust survivors, which I think is a really, you know, saddening statistic for us to know. It's really hard, I guess, to connect. Firstly, make people care about workers' rights. And I guess that's one of the things that, you know, Skiff does is from an early age, know that, you know, workers fundamentally are at odds with those that do have capital. Historically, you know, in the Pale Settlement, when the Bund was created, workers, that was your first oppression. Being Jewish, that was your second oppression. And for women especially, that was the third oppression. You know, Jewish women workers were triply oppressed. And that's why women made up more than around one third of all members of the Jewish Labour Bund, which was very unprecedented at the time for women to be involved in their union. But the reason, you know, that was the case is because Jewish workers fundamentally were very different to Russian workers or Polish workers or Kazakh workers. In Australia, and I can't, you know, speak kind of for Poland or Britain now, but in Australia, we're very much had a very strong labor movement in the early 1900s that has really set us up for, in some ways, success, in some ways, failure. And nowadays, you're not seen as a Jewish worker or by your ethnicity, you're very much seen as, you know, do you own capital? Are you owning the business and living off the work of others? Or are you the one who's contributing work? It's tough. We, as a community, you know, we, there are elements that are more affluent and those that are more affluent are able to engage more in Jewish community by, say, for instance, sending their kids to Jewish schools, whereas those that don't necessarily have the means to struggle to kind of raise the next generation of Jews. The Bund does focus on labour issues. We ran a Your Rights of Work session earlier last year. But as a whole, we definitely don't organize, say, the Jewish working class. 
yes, we do encourage you know our young members to be involved with unions and to care about labor issues. And during elections, we do support progressive candidates and do care about, say, labor policy. But it's definitely not necessarily something that you know as at the forefront now of our being that we're not a union per se of for workers, but we're more a social political cultural organization promoting our worldview and our understanding of what it means to be Jewish and how our Jewish values can progress the world. Last, um, your last episode, you were talking about how, you know, you can turn the Torah any which way and it can support whatever argument you want to have. I think, you know, that's very much applicable for us here. One of the reasons why the Jews initially in Tsarist Russia were so, yeah, it was so easy for them to understand what life under socialism was to be like was because it was a secular version of what they had traditionally been taught about the Mashiach. When Messiah comes, you will have, you know, dare I say, a classless, stateless, moneyless society where we'll all be under, you know, King Mashiach. This is exactly that, except instead of King Mashiach, it's under King working class. I certainly think that you raise a good point. We've spoken on this a few times already, although we've never explored it per se, and that will be something probably quite interesting as a discussion point for a future episode. But it's quite often both in countries which have a small Jewish community, and then a lot of people that have Jewish ancestry or some kind of connection, which you could say about Poland or the Czech Republic or other countries in Eastern Europe. Or you could even say it about countries like the United States or the UK, where there is already a sizable Jewish community, but there is a larger pool of people who are uninvolved with the community or might not identify as Jewish with partial ancestry and so on. And I strongly believe that a disproportionate number of those people are people that are poorer and working class, however that might be understood. People that do not feel comfortable in a communal environment that is shaped by philanthropy and richer people or people that are not able to or do not feel comfortable enough to afford synagogue fees, send kids to Jewish private schools or to to summer camps, or even secular cultural forms like learning Yiddish or something like that, that those, unless you are religious and you're able to, despite your poverty, be involved in your entirety within the Jewish community or have that as a predominant part of your identity, that form of Jewish cultural existence is going to lead to a disproportionate assimilation of Jewish working class people. So I think that's certainly something that needs to be a part of the analysis in any understanding of what Bundism means today around the world, which is something that we're certainly quite interested in pursuing. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because I guess Zionist answer to that is, well, you know, if you live in the nation of a Jewish, you know, perpetual Jewish state where everything around you is by default Jewish, you're not going to assimilate out of Judaism. So, you know, very much from our perspective, it is, you know, imperative that Jewish culture is seen as accessible and, you know, your birthright as opposed to simply a result of the nation that you live in. Class shouldn't stand in the way of you being able to engage with Judaism. Yeah, I think that's so important. We've already spoken about so many different sites of struggle, whether that be Jewish communities or the labor struggle against the ruling elite. The question I really would like to think about is how we internationalize the struggle, the struggle for a better world in general. And when we look at what we're opposing has organized, what we see is that we have a globalization of the struggle against the working class and against oppressed peoples around the world. And ultimately, if we want to be able to confront that, we need to be able to internationalize solidarity. We need to be able to work together with partners around the world to actually bring about change. And I was wondering how the Melbourne Bund 
thinks about internationalism as well as how you guys might practice internationalism and the way you situate your organization within the broader Jewish left-wing world? I think for us, it's the perspective that we are an organization, but not the organization. We're definitely not as active internationally as I would you know, hope for us to be, and definitely not as active as the Bund once was with the international Bundes movement. I think the big part is realizing that we are, and by we, I mean both Jews in Melbourne, but also human beings in Melbourne, and in general, human beings overall, are part of an international community. The concept of we should come before the concept of me, you know, that we are all united in one struggle, that all our struggles are interlinked, whether it's the struggle for justice, economic justice, social justice, political justice. No human is free until we are all free. And that very much includes Jews as well. Going back to our concept of Doikite, that Jews can't enjoy economic freedom, say, in Melbourne without all the people in Melbourne enjoying economic freedom. And Melbourne can't enjoy economic freedom until all of humanity enjoys economic freedom. Internationalism is hard, especially when we live in a society of nationalism, of focusing in our own small little backyard that, you know, why should I care about people in some faraway nation that I don't know about when I myself am struggling to care for myself? It's tough. And, you know, it's part of this united struggle that we have against a system that does promote selfishness and narrow-mindedness above corporation. Yeah, it's definitely incredibly hard. I've been studying the second international and the internationalist movement historically, and it's it's failed every single time that it's been tried, whether that's because it's been mostly based in the global north and therefore kind of internalized racial capitalism as something that wasn't necessarily racial in the empire. And there's so much to think about and how we do it. And one big question is about should we be building Jewish internationalism? And I think when we look at the history of the International Bund, and recognize that we don't really have that sort of network. And like it might exist relationally and transnationally between different communities, but it's not necessarily, it hasn't taken on an organizational form that can facilitate long-term cooperation. I was wondering what you might think about the prospects of trying to build that and what position the Bund might have within something like that internationally. Here's hoping, hey, absolutely, we should be building international cooperation network. And, you know, I'm sure the Bund would love to be part of it to the extent that we can be, whether it's encouraging other communities to form their own versions of the Bund or whether it's, you know, assisting the establishment of, I guess, your concept of revitalizing the Jewish Labor Bund in Poland and Britain and so forth. And so I think technology, you know, has really opened up this world for us, you know, threads can become ropes which can become bridges for us to come together and amplify our voices that you know we are an international people and so we should have this international an international voice an international echo for us to be heard not as just a single community but as a people i think that's integral for us whether that is you know done through a worldwide coalition of bunds or is something else i think that remains to be seen how it happens that's the dream wow well it's exciting to hear you say that because it's something that i personally am like very deeply committed to and it's not something that's going to be able to happen overnight as much as i really wish it could but honestly i do see that there are shifts to internationalize this struggle people are really wanting to be able to learn from each other i honestly think it's a question of how and when not if and it's something that i think we need to be relatively flexible because when you look at the history of socialist left-wing internationalism it's a history of sectarianism and infighting and splits and we really have to be going beyond that and think about how can we overcome these differences and how can we find the common ground that we can engage in common struggle for a better world together. 
And in the episode we recorded with David Adler, episode five, he made the point, like, what are we organizing for? And I think that's something that we have to be really thinking about in concrete and serious terms on, like, how can we shift our communities to fight for justice? And how can we, and that's Jewish communities, that's national and local communities, diverse communities. And it's something that is not easy, but also increasingly it is so, so urgent. We do not live in a time that we can just be sitting around and hoping that someone else will save us because it's our duty to save ourselves. Yeah. And certainly when it comes to the Jewish diaspora and on the Jewish left, I think that there is a strong feeling of sympathy and nostalgia for the Bund when you come to speak for it. And that's something that you identify with. I think that some people do not necessarily how that relates to current conditions. And therefore, there needs to be adaptations for how that can take place. Some people might not even know that there is a Bund that still exists in the world, uh, hiding uh, down <laughs> under. And, in other. But these adaptations need to be talked about and they need to be explored. And whether that is whether that produces strictly Bundist organizations or it produces organizations that link many of the similar points of view on economic, social, cultural, Jewish life and diaspora, that question certainly needs to be taken up in countries such as France, which has a majority Sephardic population. And I think that there, there can either be new forms of understanding that are not connected necessarily to Yiddishkeit in its Yiddish understanding. There can be, for example, forms of inspiration from Avram Benaroya and the Jewish labor movement in Thessaloniki in Greece before the Second World War, which in some ways could be understood to work towards a Sephardic version of the Bund if one does. A lot of the sources about that are still in Bulgaria and haven't been analysed as much as they should have by a lot of historians. And there can be other forms of inspiration that take place out of North Africa or the Middle East. There's a lot that certainly needs to be worked on still. However, it is not enough to speak about all of them in one podcast. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. If you have any words to close off this podcast that would indicate anything about the Bund or advertise any of the initiatives that you're involved in, shout out to whoever you want, then this is your spot. No pressure on me. Look, firstly, <laughs> thanks so much for involving me. Yeah, look, I think it's important to recognize our past and everyone who's fought for where we are today. But I think it's also important to recognize our present and our future, that we are still writing Jewish history and that the chapter is still very much open and that now really much is the time for us to get involved and organize amongst ourselves and fight for a Shane or a better world. So thank you very much for having me and Havishaft. Uh, Havishaft. Thank you so much, Ross. It's been a pleasure. Great, sie flattert von Zorn, von Blut ist sie reut. A schwue, a schwue, a fleb und teut. Immer um der Gewinn und sois Herren, ey, das wird sein, die lichtige Stern. A schwue, von Blut und a schwue. Mir schweren, mir schweren, mir schweren.
Freiheit und Grenzen zum Bund. Nur erkennbar Freien, die Sklaven sind. Die von die Reute ist heuch und breit. Sie flattert von Zorn, von Blut ist sie reut. Aschwur, aschwur, aflebe und teut. Mir schweren, mir schweren, mir schweren.